0: name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, James, James chapter 1. If you're not still open to James chapter 1, go ahead and turn open to that great section. Of course, Chris read a few more verses than we're going to be looking at this morning. He's read much of what we've already been through and walked through it together. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 18 this morning in a sermon that I've titled, The Great Giver and the Greatest Gift And I've decided to really have those as my two main points. And those are on the back of your bulletin that you can kind of follow along a little bit as we go through them. The great giver, how James refers to God here, and then his greatest gift to us. The first verse in our text is going to be verse 16, and it's very transitional. It moves us from what we saw last week to what we're going to be seeing this week. Last week we looked at verses 13 to 15, and we noted that God is not the one who brings us into temptation. Just a very clear, flat statement that God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts nobody. And so verses 13 to 15, we looked a lot at that in regard to that we ourselves are the culprit of sin. So when we're tempted, when we're lured away by our own desires, all of that is is on us. We're the culprit for that. And then we saw the composition of sin. How how does this all look? How is this all made up from beginning to end? From temptation to deception to desire to disobedience all the way to death. Temptation, should we succumb, will lead us to death. And all of this falls on our own shoulders. But remember that all of these pieces are things that God doesn't have for you. God doesn't have temptation for you. God is not out to lure you away. God does not want you to fall into, this, into sin. In fact, He wants the exact opposite for you. So these pieces are things that God does not have for you. He doesn't desire that any of the elect should perish, but that we should all have eternal life, that we should live holy and follow after Christ. So God is never the one that leads you into temptation. And so in moving from last week's text into this week's text, verse 16 being the hinge, last week was what God doesn't give to you or bring you to. And this week is about what He does have for you. What He is going to give you. What He does give you as one of His children. That every good and every perfect gift comes from the great giver and the greatest gift of all he's given any of us is our salvation. I wonder if you've ever had the experience throughout your life where there was a person in your life who was really good at buying gifts for you. Like anytime your birthday rolled around, anytime Christmas rolled around, there was always this one in particular person that was excellent at buying gifts for you spouse, child, friend. They knew you so well that when they set out to buy you something, it was always something that you really liked. And on the flip side, we probably all had the experience of getting really bad gifts and gifts that we didn't enjoy. We were thankful for the thought, right? But the sweater with the big Santa Claus on the front for the eighth year in the row just didn't really cut it this time, right? But for the last five years or so, my oldest sister, Brittany, has been exceptionally good at what she gives me at Christmas. Every Christmas, I'm just thrilled with whatever she gets me. Oftentimes, it'll be clothes or whatever, but whatever she picks out, it's always just something really nice. But this last Christmas, she kind of of threw me a curveball, and she got me one of those Googles, those little circle things that you talk to. You know, we were always afraid that the government was gonna wiretap our house, but we have all wiretapped our own houses with these Googles and these Alexas and all that. But she got me this Google, and it was a really great gift. But it was something, quite frankly, that when I opened it, it did catch me off guard because it was something that I would have never bought myself. I would have never thought to really go buy them. I've seen the ads all over the place, but I would never purchase one of those things for myself. I was happy to get it. I knew that I I would use it. I was thankful for it, but I would have never bought it for myself, yet I was happy to receive that gift. And in a very small way, I think this helps to illustrate part of what I want to show you from these verses. How God, the great giver, gives to us something that we would have never thought to give ourselves. Yet having that gift, we have all cause for joy. And so look with me at verse 16 again. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So in all likelihood there in verse 16, this call to not be deceived, it looks back and it looks forward. So it has a dual purpose. This verse is looking back to what He just said, but it's looking forward to what he is about to say. So don't be deceived in regard to sin, but looking forward, James doesn't want us to be deceived about who our God is and what comes from Him. And so right off the bat, he says it there, he says, every good and perfect gift is from Above, This is a very general statement, isn't it? Because we immediately want to know, what does he mean? Even though he's using the word every, we want to know what he means. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above. But don't let what feels like a general statement make you feel like this is any less potent. Especially when you consider the twice used word, every, every good and every perfect gift comes from above. And again, you may be wondering, what are these gifts? I think of James chapter 1 verse 5, which we've already looked at. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. So if you want an example of what every good and every perfect gift, well, we could have the example of wisdom there in chapter 1 verse 5. So we've already seen that God is a generous giver. He is not stingy. Right? God is not an a old hoarding miser. Right? You're in a trial. You need wisdom for the trial. Well, you ask God. He is going to be liberal in how he dispenses wisdom to you. But whatever is good and whatever is perfect, it comes from God. It is a gift from God. And this is echoed in other places in the New Testament. You think of over in John's Gospel where you have uh, actually John the Baptist who says these words, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The Apostle Paul famously says in Romans chapter 11, he gets to the end of all this great doctrine, and he jumps in and says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That everything is from God. There is not one good thing in your life that is truthful and right and good and perfect that has not come to you from the hand of God. And we don't often think of it this way, though, do we? I mean, let's take even the example of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But through your life, God is going to give you love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. All of this fruit of the Spirit that He provides for us. And how often do we think of the fruit of the Spirit that He provides as a good and perfect gift? As something that we should give... Thanks to God that in this particular situation where the world might say, how could you love that person? And God is just giving you a love for them or a trial that you're experiencing. And God is giving you a peace. And the world is like, how in the world can they just be so at peace after this happened from God? It's a good and perfect gift from God, which should move us as mere creatures to an amazing sense of gratitude. When you realize that nothing good that you have is from your own hand, but that it all came down to you from God, that is humility producing, isn't it? That's gratitude producing. Friend, there should be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. Because the Christian who truly understands that what he has is from God, it produces this humility. It produces this gratitude. And it's wonderful that as a Christian, when we experience that good gift and that perfect gift that has come down from above, it's wonderful that we have a place to go and express that gratitude, isn't it? G.K. Chesterton said that the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. How terrible would that be? To, To not believe in the Lord, to not believe in God, and you're really grateful in a moment, and you have no place to play, to put that Thanks. Yeah, we have a God to whom we can go and thank. In fact, the great giver isn't pictured by James as distant. Again, he doesn't present God as stingy, and he doesn't present God as unreachable. What is the word he uses for God here? Father. He calls him the father of God. Lights. And that's an interesting way to refer to God, and you don't see it explicitly that way anywhere else in the Bible. The closest, I think, is what you see in 1 John, where it says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So well, this is something that God is. He is light. There's absolutely no darkness in God whatsoever. He's the Father of lights. And I think that this is a, a two, there's a two-sided application here. That God is the Father of lights, which indicates two things. The first thing is that He is a Father. He is loving and tender toward His children. But it describes who our loving Father is, that He's the Father of lights. That He's the creator of the lights in reference to astronomy. The, the lights being the stars and the sun and the moon. This is likely a reference back to Genesis chapter 1 in the Old Testament or certain Old Testament sections talking about the light. And in Genesis chapter 1 it says, And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So the Father who created those incredible, bright, gleaming stars and the moon and the sun, all you see in the heavenlies, this is the God from which every good and perfect gift comes from. And so the view of God that James has is that he is our father. He has the heart that desires to give toward his children, but he is also the creator. He has the power to give all things to his children. That's often a tough thing as parents, isn't it? I think for all of us, our hearts go out to our children, don't they? And we want to give them the world. Like if we could take the world in our hands and give it to them we would do it, wouldn't we? Like We want to give them a good education. We want to give them fun toys. We want to give them good life experiences. We want to give them good relationships. We have the heart of tender moms and dads and grandparents toward them. But oftentimes we don't have the power to make those things happen. We don't have the expendable income to give them everything they desire. We don't have the power to make everybody nice to them. And it makes us feel inept at times. And so our heart is tender toward them, and we want to give to them. But oftentimes we simply don't have the means to do it. But this is not the way it is with our Father in heaven. He has both the heart to give to His children, and He has the power to make it happen. But notice in the end of verse 17, that this is a very important comment on our great giver, and it stands in stark contrast to our own character as humans. James says in verse 17, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The fact that every good and perfect gift comes from God is based upon God Himself. As the God in whom there is no variation, there's no shadow in God due to some sort of change in God. Like we sing, and we will sing at the end of this service, in great is thy faithfulness. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be, right? Or, like we were saying earlier, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never changing. God cannot change. There is no variation, there's no shadow due to change in God. And this falls under the doctrine of what's called immutability. Immutability. You can hear in the middle of that word, the word mutate, right? Immutability, mutate. God does not mutate, He cannot change. He is immutable. For those of you who would like to take down some Scripture passages on this subject, I think it's especially important in light of how many people think about God, that sometimes we can think of God as reactionary, yet God is not reactionary. He cannot change. He's immutable. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Psalm 102, verse 27 but you are the same and your years have no end. Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Maybe most famously, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I do not change. Hebrews 13:8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So it's an absolutely undeniable fact for us that God is immutable. God cannot change. And I think that there's a purposeful contrast here by James. That God is the Father of lights. And there's no shadow or variation due to change. So if I can illustrate it this way in keeping with the Father of lights idea that James gives us. I mean, you think of the moon. The moon is beautiful when it's a full moon. Especially in October when it's just that big, hanging, creepy moon, right? They're beautiful. But a full moon is bright. On one side, isn't it? There's a dark side of the moon that isn't receiving the sun's light, right? I think that's true, right? The the dark side of the moon, right? So there are variations of change in the moon, while what? The sun remains constant. So the moon is changing and reflecting the sun in various ways, but the sun remains constant. The sun doesn't have a shadow because the sun is bright all the way around, while the moon merely reflects the sun. And in a very small way, I think this helps demonstrate James's point that God is the Father of lights, He is the Creator. There is no shadow that results from a change in God. He does not change. And so, if our God is the great giver, the unchanging Creator who is tender toward His children and dispenses every good gift toward His children, what is the greatest gift? That he has given to us. I think that's clearly seen in verse 18. Of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits. Of his creatures. As we've gotten used to. James often uses metaphors and illustrations. To help us understand how he thinks about things. And there is another birthing metaphor here. That we're brought forth. Again, I think that James is taking a page out of Jesus' playbook, Big Brother Jesus, right? And using his illustration, remember in John chapter 3 where Jesus famously makes the point to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. And this is a strange concept in Nicodemus, isn't it? He says, should I enter into my mother's womb? And be born again here he is a man should i go back to my mom somehow get back inside and come back out is that what you mean by being born again and of course jesus was not talking about being reborn physically but being born again spiritually and james picks up on this here and really explains some of how this has happened we have been brought forth we have been born again okay so how have we been born again how did this all happen Well, as it turns out, James and Jesus' illustration of being born is a perfect analogy for being spiritually born. Think about this with me. Which one of you would raise your hand and say, I had everything to do with my existence. Like, I chose to be conceived by my mom and dad. When my mom was giving birth to me, it wasn't really she who was pushing me out, or the doctor pulling me out, it was me. I was the one crawling myself out, right? that'd be weird. When I hear a mother talking about giving birth to a child, it's always, I was in 15 hours of labor with you. The labor was on the mother's part, not the child's part, right? And this simple, simple analogy that Jesus and James use in regard to being brought forth or being born again, notice, does not have to do with you. Now, I know some of you would like to push back on that and try to come to some sort of conclusion that, that makes sure that our free will is at play, however you decide to, to determine what free will is, how you and define that, you want that to be at play when it comes to be being spiritually born. But brothers and sisters, just like the choices involved in your physical birth were not your own, the choices involved in your spiritual birth were not your own. And although that might sound shocking to you, What do the first four words of verse 18 say? Like, how did this rebirth happen? Of his own will. Why are you a Christian today? If you are indeed a Christian. How were you spiritually born? How did you come to trust in Christ? At its utter foundation, the reason that you are a Christian is because God willed it. Just like any good and perfect gift that you have received in your life, you would never say, oh no, this love that I have for this person in this terrible situation is from myself. How selfish does that sound? Or this patience that I'm able to have, this is all on me, I'm the one giving myself. You would never say that. So if every good and perfect gift is from God, then how can your spiritual life not be from God? And this is such an important point, and I want you to see it more fully by looking at a couple of other passages why don't you flip over to Romans chapter 9 so just like last week we talk a lot about temptation and sin and James showed us how all of that comes about but here he gets into how our spiritual birth came about but Paul specifically expands on what James touches on in shorthand but Romans chapter 9 verse 14 what shall we say then is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Notice verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Are you, are you noticing this language here? You will then say to me, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does mold say to its molder? Have you... Made me like this. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonor? And so it is God who will have mercy on whom He will have mercy and He will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. This is on the part of God. And then you have the radically explicit verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. But what's it depend on? God who has mercy and can you see how Paul anticipates that all of us would naturally push back on this, wouldn't we? I think all of us we start thinking through and start connecting the dots, and that this implication, this leads over here, this leads over here. Whoa, hang on a second. So you're telling me that God made this choice, and you see in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does He still find fault? So if all of this is up to God anyway, how can he find fault in those who never had a choice to begin with? And verse 20 is just the silencer. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Like that's the response to the question well, how can you believe that God is the one who made the explicit choice in and of himself, and that had nothing to do with me? Verse 20, who are you, O man, to respond back to God? Who are you? I think the implied rhetorical right answer is we're nobody. Doesn't the potter have the right to do what he wants with his clay? I was going to take you to Ephesians 1, but decided not to within the sermon. Definitely go home and look at Ephesians 1 this afternoon and just wonder at the mystery of God's elective purposes in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. But I do want to bring up to you the very well-known verses in Ephesians 2 and verses 8 and 9 that many of you will know by heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. What is it? It's a gift of God. Why? So that no one will boast. So why? Because God knew that left to our own sinfulness, in regard to our own choice in this matter, God knew that if we were going to have this in and of ourselves, we made the choice, we were smarter than everyone, we figured it out more so than anybody else, that we would boast about it, wouldn't we? So that no one may boast. So we've been saved by grace. Where does grace come from? God. We've been saved through faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So God, it is a gift, not the result of your works. It's not your own doing. Why? Because if it were your own doing and our sinfulness, God knows that our tendency would be to boast about it. And we would, wouldn't we? just speaking for myself, I know that left to myself, I would have never chosen God. Why would I have chosen him? Left to myself, I would have enjoyed the fleeting pleasures of sin. I would have pursued my own passions as far and as hard as I could. My spiritual birth and our spiritual birth is simply the result of our loving father setting his love toward us. And I really do think that this has to cause us to step back and wonder. like To consider the mystery involved in all this. And the intricacy of our God and the why. And cause us to be grateful and humble. And so we have this great gift of the rebirth given to us by the will of God. But with what did he bring us to life? Like What was the instrument that he used to revive us? Verse 18 again. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So you notice how lopsided this is toward the great giver. He brought us forth by his own will, by his word of truth. So in order for you to become a Christian, you need what is called special revelation. There's a difference between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is something that we have all received. We go outside and we see the lights, we see the stars, we see the moon, we see the sun, we see the beauty of the earth. That our God has created. You mean summertime in Maine. You just drive around. And it is beautiful in this place. And that's general revelation. This is what God reveals to every single human being. That all know that there is a God. Simply by what he reveals in the universe. But special revelation. God opens our eyes to see the truth about him. As revealed in scripture. Specifically I think what James is getting at. Is the gospel. James and Paul both use terminology, this terminology, the word of truth, and Paul explicitly connects the word of truth with the gospel a couple of times in Colossians and Ephesians. So the gospel is the story of Jesus. The the entire scripture speaks to the gospel story from the beginning to the end, but it culminates in all that Jesus has done, in his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of which he did on behalf of those he came to save. And the Spirit of God uses the message of the gospel to open eyes. Like, Have your eyes not been opened by the word of truth? Have your eyes not been opened by the gospel? And so you may certainly believe in God, and you hear that a lot, don't you? Like, This person over here, they believe in God. And they believe in God. Well, of course, we're all supposed to believe in God because general revelation shows us all that God is real. But have they received special revelation? You don't really know Jesus until you know what Jesus has done on your behalf. And the story of what he has done for us is seen in this gospel. And so the question isn't if you believe in God or not. But what do you believe God has done specifically on your behalf? You believe in the great giver, but have you believed in the greatest gift? Summed up, the greatest gift he has given to us is his son. For God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish But they'll have eternal life. So God loved the world in this way. He condescended this much to earth as the Father of lights, giving His Son to this wicked world. And He gave Him. He gave His Son. His perfect, holy Son. For what? Like, Think about that. What did God give Jesus for? For a bunch of wicked, spiritually dead people? For us, for people like me, with my past and sins and struggles and failures. For people like you, with your sins and past and struggles and failures. This is what he gave him for. For you, the perfect for the imperfect. Friend, you cannot be saved by your good works. You cannot be saved by perfect church attendance. You cannot be saved in charting your own course. There is only one way to God, and that is through His begotten Son, Jesus. The only way to the Father of lights is through the Son that He has given. And for those whom God wills, as James puts it here in verse 18, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Those who are brought forth by the will of God through the gospel are a first fruits of his creatures. Like like a farmer takes his first crop. So we are the first fruits brought forth by God. How do you respond to a couple verses like this? We've only really looked at a couple of these verses. How do you respond to them? An explanation of, of the great giver that every good and perfect gift comes to us from God. And that He is immutable. Like it's all based on the fact that He doesn't change. We all change, and God never changes. And then thinking and considering what God has given to us specifically in Jesus, He gave everything for us. And I think that He is rightly due a generous offer. Of praise, that we should be a humble people in light of this, we should be a grateful people in front of us who, upon thinking upon the work of God in Christ for us, it should produce resounding praise. In fact, in closing the sermon, will you sing the doxology with me? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father, we thank you for being this great giver who has the heart of a father toward us and the power to give every good and perfect gift to us, namely, specifically, in our salvation. How humbled and grateful we are to know that it is all of you for us. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.